The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. Hello and welcome to this History Extra Plus podcast, Pearl Harbor, the story of the surprise attack. This is episode one, A Gathering Storm in Japan. 80 years ago, on the 7th of December 1941, a US naval base on a small Hawaiian island in the middle of the Pacific found itself under attack. As Japanese bombers screamed across the skies over Pearl Harbor that morning, they plotted a course that would alter not only the lives of those stationed at the base below them, but those of millions across the world. Addressing his dumbstruck nation in the attack's aftermath, President Franklin D. Roosevelt called the 7th of December 1941 a date which will live in infamy. And eight decades on, the raid on Pearl Harbor is still remembered as one of the most significant moments of the Second World War a daring surprise attack that suddenly catapulted the industrial behemoth of the United States into the conflict, and in so doing, arguably tipped the balance of power. I'm Ellie Cawthorn, and in this five-part series, I'm going to be taking a look back at this pivotal moment in global history. I'll be speaking to expert historians about the long historical roots underlying US-Japanese hostilities, charting exactly how the attack unfolded and exploring its far-reaching consequences. In this first episode, we'll be trying to understand why the Japanese embarked on such a seemingly mad gamble as attacking the US at Pearl Harbor. And in order to do that, first, we need to rewind a bit. In order to understand the attack on Pearl Harbor, I think it's really important to understand what things look like from the inside of Japan at this point. One important element is the sense that Japan is already in a conflict which is more or less existential for the country against China and now with this looming, seemingly inevitable conflict uh, against the West. The other element, I think, from the military point of view is that Japan is at the point where it is almost out of war-making, even self-defence resources. And if it doesn't get access to new resources, then Japan might be finished. You just heard the historian Christopher Harding, senior lecturer in Asian history at the University of Edinburgh and the author of books including Japan's Story in Search of a Nation and The Japanese, A History in 20 Lives. In this first episode, Chris is going to help us get to grips with what was going on in Japan in the years running up to December 1941 and the long-running historical factors that edged the country ever closer to war with the United States. To start us off, I asked Chris to take us back to the febrile environment of 1930s Japan and give us a sense of what was happening in the nation at the time. Probably the big theme for that period is a sense beginning in Japan's military and in right-wing circles in particular that the global train of events is going very much against Japan, that the interwar dream of internationalism in the end is something that very much favours European colonial powers in the United States. And if you add to that the threat of the Soviet Union and also the Chinese nationalists, then Japan, with its rather awkward geography just off the Asian continent and with the Americans on the other side across the Pacific, Japan is starting to feel really squeezed. There's talk of 
encirclement, you might say. So that's the picture on the outside. The picture on the inside of Japan, I think, is that, again, for people in the military, right-wing critics also, a sense that Japan's political status quo is failing it, that its diplomats can't stand up for its interests internationally, and that its civilian politicians are much more interested in lining their own pockets than they are in really strengthening Japan's position. And also in treating the majority of Japanese, particularly rural Japanese, particularly well. There's a sense that a lot of people in rural Japan feel they're being made to suffer for the interests of wealthy urban Japanese, which is always a mistake if most of your armed forces recruit from the countryside. So that sense of from the outside encirclement insecurity, and on the inside, a sense that a fairly long-standing political status quo is no longer fit for purpose. When you speak to historians about the causes of big historical moments, something that they often want to do is to get you to take a look further back. An event as momentous as Pearl Harbour can't be understood just by examining the couple of months or even couple of years leading up to it. So I asked Chris about the longer trends in Japanese society that had been at play for several decades by the time that we reached 1941. Ever since Japan opened its doors, as we often say, to the West, and first of all to the Americans in the 1850s, across all the decades since, there was always this concern that if you open up to trade and diplomatic relations, and if you look to adopt industry, technology, etc., from places like the United States and Europe, you're going to struggle to do that without putting your own culture at risk. You know, how can you grab hold of technology, industry, weaponry, banking infrastructure, etc., and not yet take on all these other trappings uh, of Western modernity, which people in Japan were quite worried about? How do you avoid basically becoming a kind of Asian facsimile of a place like Britain? So there's always that low-running cultural concern that Japan will be swamped by British-American culture, French culture to an extent as well. Um, that bubbles along all the way and it erupts at, at various points. I think by by the late 1930s, those cultural concerns are being exploited by people in Japan, ideologues, people in the military who want greater power for themselves, who want to try to say that civilian democracy along the lines that Japan has been experimenting with it, you know, for half a century roughly, isn't really working. That you can point to all sorts of areas of Japanese life, whether it's the economy, the imbalance between urban and rural, uh, Japan, fantastic examples of corruption amongst politicians, including some of them taking money and intermarrying with big conglomerates. Uh, all sorts of reasons why civilian democracy seems to have failed Japan. And the big argument they make, again, coming from within the military, but I think tapping into broader cultural concerns, is that if you want to look for one institution in Japanese society, which is not westernized, which is not corrupt, which is not self-seeking, then you should look to the military. If you look back at the, the past few decades for the Imperial Japanese Army and Navy, they can point to victory over China, 1894 to 95. They can point to victory over Russia, which was a huge moment, 1904 to 5. And they can point to what certainly militarists would say is a reputation for putting the good of the nation first and sacrificing yourself for that. So the military is an example of the kind of values that Japan ought to be preserving, they would say. And this militarism is something that I want to delve into in a bit more depth. Could an increasing focus on military values and the influence of military figures in top jobs be something that helped push the nation down the path towards war? 
So I suppose one of the important things about Japan in this period is the shape of its constitution since uh, 1889 is that the armed forces do not report to uh, civilian Democrats. They don't report to Japan's uh, parliament or the Diet, as it's called. They report straight to the emperor. And so they've always had the direct ear of the emperor. They've always been competing um, for power with the Diet to try and get their budgets passed, to try and have a certain influence over foreign policy. So the military has always had influence in that way. And interestingly, at no time all the way through to 1945 are those constitutional arrangements actually overturned. There's never a successful coup. There's an attempted coup in February 1936, which doesn't work out. So there's never a, a single point at which you have a military takeover in Japan. Instead, it is the entrance of particular military figures into influential cabinet roles in the political sphere. It's the damaging of civilian politicians reputations, um, particularly across the 1930s. And also, I think it's a broader culture in Japan, which says that, as I say, the military represent the kind of values that people ought to aspire to. And they have quite a lot of clout in schools and in the media. You have what's called an Imperial Military Reserve Association, around three million members by the middle of the 1930s. And they act as a kind of pressure group on government policy, especially where they think that rural Japan uh, is being impoverished because of bad policymaking. You know, so in cultural terms, practical terms, and also in political terms, they are starting to have more influence and often get the better of the argument. And were militaristic figures always necessarily warmongering? Is that a simple equation? I don't think so, no. So, in the 1920s and then into the early 1930s, there are, broadly speaking, two groups in the military. One is quite cautious, called the control faction. They say Japan has its enemies, but the kind of warfare that it can expect to have to employ in the years to come requires really uh, high-tech equipment, which requires industry, which requires a strong economy. So Japan has to be quite cautious in its foreign policy. So they tend to be not exactly dovish, but they're certainly cautious. The other faction is, I suppose, probably the more interesting one for us. It's called the Imperial Way faction. Their ideology really goes back to the 1880s and Prussian influence in Japan's military, which says, you know what, technology matters, but in the end, fighting spirit is what really counts. You have to have that spirit that says you'll make the first move, the surprise attack. If it comes to it, you have to be willing to lay down your life. Expressions like retreat ought not to be in your vocabulary. And they say, because that spirit is so important, we can start short, aggressive, hit-and-run conflicts sooner rather than later, because the Japanese military does have that spirit, and countries like the United States don't. And as Chris told me, while Japan's mainstream was becoming ever more militaristic, there was also a targeted campaign to undermine and even eliminate key figures in the country's civilian leadership. One of the really important things that happens across the 1930s that leads us to a, a sort of shift uh, in power um, that's worth talking about is the what you could almost call a campaign of government by assassination. So it isn't just that you have people becoming more sceptical in right-wing circles that civilian politicians are, as it were, not helping Japan out on the international stage. You have ultra-nationalists, both within the military and civilians, taking things into their own hands. So particularly in the early part of 1932, you have 
have a series of um, assassinations. So a former finance minister is assassinated. The prime minister himself, Inukai Tsuyoshi, is also assassinated. And there are a number of other attacks. So civilian democracy is quite literally coming under attack from ultranationalists at this point. And what that does, along with a, a failed military coup in 1936, what it does is not overturn the constitution, but it makes people think uh, at the top of civilian politics and in the ministries that Japan really cannot in this period do full-on civilian democracy anymore, that it needs to go for more of a state management uh, arrangement, partly inspired by the Nazis in Germany, because in this period they seem to be doing things rather effectively, getting things done, you know, building up the army, building up the economy, etc. The Japanese wonder whether actually democracy has had its day anyway, and now is the time for greater state management uh, in the economy. So all those things are happening across the 1930s. So by the time you get to the run-up to Pearl Harbor, the power of ordinary civilian Democrats to do anything meaningful in terms of Japan's foreign policy has basically ebbed away completely. So let's turn now to that foreign policy. As well as understanding what was happening within Japan in the 1930s, it's important to know what Japan was getting up to outside its borders, as it was this expansionist activity that ultimately brought them into direct conflict with the international community, including the United States. I asked Chris to outline some of Japan's ambitions on the global stage and the motivations behind Japanese expansion. Uh, I think there are two ways of looking at it. There have always been two broad approaches. One which is perhaps more sympathetic uh, to Japan is that the best way to understand how the Japanese see things is to imagine in your mind what the world looks like centred upon Japan. The Japanese would say that because of their geography, they always have to take an interest in mainland Asia because southwest part of Japan, the smallish island of Kyushu, just off the main island of Honshu, is very, very close to the Korean peninsula. The view had always been, you know, going back to the 1870s, that if the Japanese didn't either secure someone friendly on the Korean peninsula or secure it for themselves, then there was a danger of uh, the Korean, Korean peninsula being taken over by European imperialists. And it's a very easy hop across from there to Japan. So there was a sense that Korea, one way or another, would have to come within Japan's orbit. And in 1910, the Japanese annex it completely. And then once you've done that, it's very difficult to then say, well, where are the Japanese prepared to leave their line of defence? Because if you have the Korean Peninsula. Just to the north of that, you've got Manchuria, this really resource-rich region, which is potentially contested by China, Japan, and uh, the Soviet Union. How are you going to ensure that the Soviets don't get their hands on that? Because if they do, they can threaten Korea. Or if the Chinese nationalists do, they can threaten Korea. So it's almost a case of, from the Japanese point of view, where do you stop? Where are you prepared to say your security is now being satisfied? Because this argument of encirclement, from the Japanese point of view, looks quite real. You've got the Americans across in the Pacific and in Southeast Asia. You've got the British in Southeast Asia, Hong Kong. You've got the Dutch in Southeast Asia. You've got the French there as well. You've got the Chinese to your west, and then you've got the Russians to your northwest. The world genuinely looks like quite a dangerous place from the Japanese point of view. And all the League of Nations era talk of international cooperation, increasingly for skeptics in Japan, looks like a kind of a fig leaf for maintaining a status quo that's very favourable to uh, the British and the Americans and the Europeans. So there's a sense that from a security point of view, also from a resources point of view, because Japan's very resource poor, um, Japan really is uh, in trouble and needs to uh, secure itself in this period. 
The focus there was on threat of encirclement, security, defence. But was there any sense of expansion being an aggressive policy as well? Exactly, yes. I think that's the other side of it. So the Japanese had always sought to become a uh, modern Western-style power since opening up to um, the rest of the world in the 1850s. And one aspect of that, as far as they were concerned, was to become an imperial power. There was almost no serious modern power anywhere in the world that hadn't claimed some part or other of the world for itself. And the view that the Japanese took was that Asia is one part of the world where vulnerability to European colonialism is particularly acute. You know, you only have to look across the water and see what's happened to China, you know, being carved up by European powers. So the view taken in Japan was that, yes, Japan needed to build an empire. And it really started doing it incredibly early, actually, from the late 1860s onwards. The northern island of what is now Hokkaido hadn't really been part of Japan before the 1860s. That was annexed. Um, The Ryukyu Islands, which we now know as Okinawa on the way to uh, Taiwan were annexed. Taiwan was later taken um, and then Korea. And there's a really self-conscious attempt by the Japanese to portray themselves as an imperial power and a civilizing power. So they're not in Korea just to take all of its resources or to have a kind of captive um, commercial audience for its products. It's about raising up Korea, modernizing Korea in the image of Japan. Of course, the reality is exploitation, very authoritarian rule, the death of thousands of Koreans who tried to oppose Japanese rule. But there was always that whether you want to call it a fig leaf or a justification, whatever it is, that Japan is a civilizing force. And that idea, I think, becomes quite powerful in the second half of the 1930s, because the Japanese can say all these parts of Southeast Asia have fallen to European rule. The Japanese are going to be liberators for all those countries. One of the key flashpoints in this Japanese expansion came in September 1931, with an event that became known as the Mukden Incident. I think when people talk about Japan's militarists, the group that many people have in mind is the Kwantung Army, uh, which is the unit of the Japanese military who are assigned to protect Japan's interests in Manchuria, this region to the northeast of China, or just north of Korea, if you want to look at it from that point of view, which is very much contested between the Soviet Union, uh, the Chinese nationalists, and Japan, who are quite well entrenched in Korea by the early 1930s. There is, through some parts of this uh, region of Manchuria, a railway network, uh, the southern parts of the region, uh, I should say, where the rail network and the corridor of land around the railway lines um, is on a long-term lease to Japan after its victory over Russia um, in 1905. So the Kwantung Army's job is to secure that railway uh, and its land corridors. It's very lucrative um, in terms of uh, mining resources, other forms of commerce. But that Kwantung Army, because it's quite cut off uh, from uh, Tokyo, where some, you know, all the decisions are supposed to be made about what the armed forces do, it tends to attract radicals who are keen for Japan to take much more of a hawkish approach, shall we say, uh, in its foreign relations. And what you find by September 1931 is a group of radicals within the Kwantung Army have decided that now is the time for Japanese forces to launch a full-on takeover in that region. Because if they don't do it, the Chinese nationalists who are consolidating might eventually come north and grab it, or the Soviets might come further east and grab it. And whoever has that region has a really advantageous position in North Asia, generally in Northeast Asia. And so they plant a bomb on the tracks 
uh, of the Manchurian Railway. Um, they claim that it's a Chinese attack. When it's not, they have corpses with Chinese uniforms on them strewn around to allegedly back up the uh, the claim they're making. And they use that as a pretext to launch an offensive, which within a few short months results in more or less a full takeover of the region. And in March 1932, the Republic of Manchukuo is pronounced a puppet government, basically um, fully controlled by the Japanese. And I suppose from a Western point of view, um, that's the point at which the Japanese properly become, as it were, the bad guy. You know, the League of Nations investigate, and a year later, in the spring of 1933, they say that the Japanese are clearly the aggressor in that case. And the Japanese respond by leaving the League of Nations. Would you see that as a turning point in Japan's relations with the West? Yeah, I, I think that's right. People certainly less favourable to the Japanese after that. And yet it's a few years, you, you know, it's not another, what is it, another seven or eight years until, for example, the United States really starts putting the squeeze on Japan in terms of exports of important materials like iron and steel. So there's still a way to go after 1933 uh, before Japan is fully isolated. But I would certainly say, if you look at it from the perspective of people inside Japan, leaving the League of Nations and the sense of being isolated then internationally really plays into a more general sense of crisis, you know, which encompasses that sense that civilian democracy isn't right for Japan either. One of the things that militarists in Japan and right-wing ideologues generally always like to say is that it's us against them, it's Japan against this fig leaf of an international community, which really means Britain, America and their friends. And having left the League, it makes it much easier to make that point. Crisis is, as it were, of benefit to those who want to see the military take a greater role. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com extra. Although a ceasefire was called on the invasion of Manchuria with the Tangu Truce of May 1933, it was not to be the end of Japan's conflict with China. In July 1937, a clash at the Marco Polo Bridge, southwest of Beijing, reignited conflict, which quickly escalated into full-scale war. A long-running standoff that was to prove a relentless drain on Japanese resources and was increasingly hard to back down from. I think the point where things really tip is in the summer of 1937, where the Japanese and the Chinese nationalists fail to come to any kind of agreement. There's a real breakdown in trust and full-on war breaks out with China. I think at that point, it's very hard to see where things would stop because, you know, within, I think, what, one or two fairly short years, the Japanese have committed 850,000 troops to China in a war that, I mean, of course, hindsight is twenty twenty, but it's very hard to see how the Japanese could ever have sustained the kind of force to successfully conquer and occupy a country the size of China. And once you become mired in a war like that, one of your big problems becomes the resources to maintain an army of that size and maintain a conflict 
on that scale. And it's that poverty of resources that ends up driving the Japanese into Southeast Asia and ultimately to Pearl Harbor. And the strain that ongoing war with China placed on the Japanese wasn't just a question of resources. It also had a dramatic impact on the mindset of ordinary Japanese people, one that might help us to understand attitudes towards the prospect of launching an attack on the US. By middle-late 1941, Japan has been at war for four years. And I suppose for each one of those four years, the Japanese population have felt them being felt themselves being squeezed ever harder by their government, who's desperately trying to finance a war that in China um, is spiralling out of control in terms of its costs, the amount of men being thrown in, and the sense that as the nationalists move further and further into the interior of China, it's really hard to say when and how that war might come to an end. So you've got attempts in Japan to mobilise the population um, economically, the government taking control of different industries, trying to persuade the population to save, trying to get them to dress more austerely, even interfering with how women do their hair, because if it's too flamboyant, then you're not 100% perhaps behind the war effort if you're interested in having expensive dues rather than helping to fund um, the war effort. There's also what the Japanese call a national spiritual mobilisation campaign um, from 1937, which includes going into schools and explaining to school children why the Japanese are having to fight. And I think that's really important to understanding Pearl Harbour, because it's a kind of indoctrination to the effect that you have these hostile, encircling, imperialistic powers, which are intent on squeezing and then destroying Japan, and that Japan essentially is fighting a war of self-defence. So what looks to the outside world like a, a steady ramping up of Japanese aggression from the inside of Japan, at least to those who are subject to this indoctrination, it looks like an ever more desperate attempt to basically save Japan um, more or less from complete destruction. So you have the economic squeeze and something like rice rationing from 1940 onwards really brings it home, the economic on one side and a really heavy so-called spiritual mobilisation on the other. So by the time you get to the end of 1941 and the decision to attack Pearl Harbour, this is already a conflict that people are being persuaded is existential for Japan. This idea of Japan feeling trapped in an existential battle against the Western imperialist powers is something that I want to look at in more detail, because I think it's really important for getting to grips with the nature of US-Japanese relations in this period. And to understand it better, we need to cycle back to a couple of decades earlier, when discontent between Japan and the Western global powers was already fermenting in the aftermath of the First World War. The First World War, not everyone always appreciates the fact, but during the First World War, the Japanese were on the side of the Allies. So you have um, Japanese Navy vessels rescuing Allied soldiers, sailors in the Mediterranean when they get um, when their vessels get destroyed. So the Japanese thought when it comes to the Paris Peace Conference that they've earned a seat at the top table, that they ought to be listened to, that they ought to you know, derive some kind of advantage uh, in their part of the world. And they are really rebuffed. I think the really important point on which they're rebuffed is their attempt to get a racial equality clause worked into that agreement. This clause was intended to confirm the equality of all nations regardless of race. And its rejection by the Western powers confirmed the Japanese view that they would always be seen as an inferior global player. 
Because there is this highly racialized sense in Japan that European imperialism or colonialism is very much premised on a, an idea of a racial hierarchy in which the so-called yellow races are quite low down. There's a lot of racism in countries like America, particularly towards the Chinese, but uh, you know, to a lesser extent, but still noticeably towards the Japanese as being um, inferior. The Chinese are kind of caricatured as being kind of a, a race of drug-addled washermen and washer women. There are lots of cartoons in the newspapers that make that vividly clear. And so the Japanese want this great enlightened moment, you know, of 1918-1919 to be one that addresses that and in doing so gives the Japanese more of a basis for having some serious uh, pride in their international position. So to have that ignored is a serious blow. And then just a few years later, uh, in 1924, you have the US Immigration Act, which very much plays on fears of a so-called yellow peril, trying to limit Japanese immigration into the United States. And it really underscores a sense that whatever the rhetoric coming out of places like the United States and Britain, in the end, the Japanese are second-class citizens, diplomatic and racially. And I think that is really grist to the mill of people in Japan who do take this quite oppositional view across the 20s and then the 1930s. And of course, it, it was America that Japan decided to launch a direct attack against. What can you tell us about that specific relationship and how it disintegrated over this period? So there was a lot of goodwill and there was a lot of trade between the two countries, heavy traffic across the Pacific. There was a good trading relationship, commercial relationship. I think there was a good cultural relationship too. So it may seem almost trivial, but American jazz, both in terms of live music and then later on uh, vinyl record, was huge in Japan. Dance halls in places like Tokyo uh, and Osaka uh, were full of people. It was a it was a vibrant relationship. And for those parts of Japan, and it really is especially the cities, I think, um, the sense of Japan being quite a cosmopolitan society in the 1920s and the first half of the 1930s, away from politics, that is, was largely fueled by a love of American culture. I think you could mention Hollywood as well um, as being quite important. So there was a lot of affection uh, for America at the cultural level, at the commercial level. And yet... Underneath any cultural or commercial goodwill, Chris told me there was also an undercurrent of a darker sentiment towards America. At the more highbrow, reflective, philosophical end, if you like, of Japanese intellectual life, there were those across the 1930s who worried that the influence of Western uh, commerce, hypercapitalism, individualism was undermining what was seen by some in Japan as being family values and a closeness uh, to nature and a sense of self-sacrifice. I mean, some of these things may sound almost like cultural cliches, but in the writing of big philosophers uh, like Watsuji Tetsuro, there was a lot of work going on in the 30s that tried to contrast the selfish, um, grasping, soulless Western mentalities on the one hand with more natural, holistic ones on the other. When you talk about Japan, there was great pride that Japan had managed to modernize without losing its soul. So I think because that was there in the background, there was that 
element of culture, that element of the relationship that could come to the fore when it suited people politically, once you get into the later 1930s. And so when it did suit people politically, how did this relationship start to disintegrate? Could you highlight some key moments? I think 1919 uh, was a key moment. As we were saying, there's a, a sense of, um, in, in some cases anyway, people thinking that the, uh, the wool had been pulled over their eyes for a while, but the way 1919 worked out made it clear to people who had, you know, the real power in the world. That was probably one moment. The Immigration Act was another. I think another couple of moments, there are two naval treaties, one in the early 1920s, one I think in 1930, where the British, the Americans and the Japanese seek to come to an agreement about their relative naval strengths. They try and come up with these naval ratios for certain classes of uh, of naval hardware. And the Japanese tend to come off uh, worse in that. They end up being forced to agree to having uh, a smaller navy than either the US um, or Britain. So there's a sense, I think, there of, of really being pushed around. Also, I think you could probably say across the 1930s, attempts made by Japanese leaders to explain their need for security are not often met very favourably uh, on the American side. Uh, from the Japanese point of view, what seems to be happening, I suppose, in particular, once the Second World War has broken out, you know, and the deck is being shuffled and the Japanese are trying to work out how might we make the most of this, it becomes clear that whatever the Japanese are going to try to do to wrap up the conflict in China or secure their resources in Southeast Asia, uh, the Americans are going to start pushing back uh, more and more. I suppose particularly once you find Japan signing uh, its tripartite pact with Germany and Italy in 1940. From after that point, really, the Japanese don't feel like they get very much sympathy at all. So let's discuss the tripartite pact that Chris mentioned there in a bit more depth. Signed on the 27th of September 1940, the pact was a defensive alliance between Japan, Nazi Germany and fascist Italy. It stated that if any of the three nations were attacked by, quote, a power at present not involved with the European war or in the Sino-Japanese conflict, they would, quote, assist one another with all political, economic and military means. So, why did Japan enter into this alliance? I think there were probably two aspects to that. There were some in Japan who were interested in the idea that liberal democracy might have had its day as a way of organising a nation's affairs, and that what the Nazis were achieving in Germany in terms of strict top-down management of the economy, as you know, being the most efficient way of building up a nation's power, was possibly the way to go. So there was a lot of keen interest being paid towards the way the Nazis were doing things. And I should say, you know, at that point, it wasn't entirely clear yet, or at least the full horror of what Nazism ended up meaning was not yet entirely clear. That's not to make excuses for those in Japan who are sympathetic to the Nazis, but I think it's important to put ourselves in that period, you know, in the late 1930s when it looked like um, the Nazis were achieving incredible things. That's one part of it. I think the other part of it is just a sense that if uh, the French and the British were going to be under serious pressure in Europe, then there was an opportunity for the Japanese to assert themselves opportunistically in Southeast Asia um, in a way that they hadn't really done before. So in places like Indochina, uh, for example, it's just a chance to make a grab for resources um, that they might not otherwise have had. And if you can have the Germans and the Italians more or less on board with that idea, then it certainly helps. And signing the tripartite pact was not the only Japanese foreign policy move that America wasn't happy about. In the run-up to that, the Americans were, of course, 
not happy with what the Japanese were doing in China, then Japan's neutrality pact with the Soviet Union in April 1941. So there are a series of Japanese foreign policy moves which seem to be more and more um, aggressive as far as the Americans are concerned. I think the extra element there, which we haven't yet mentioned, is uh, in the summer of 1940, actually the announcement of a new policy in Japan, which is um, the Greater East Asia Co-Prosperity Sphere. The idea that basically Japan, China, eventually, once the war is won and the Japanese have a, a friendlier government there, Manchukuo, French Indochina and the Dutch East Indies will become a single uh, cooperative entity, particularly in terms of um, their economic affairs. And that the purpose of that will be Asians standing up for Asia and getting rid of uh, European and American colonialism. So you have a series of uh, policy decisions by the Japanese, as well as the conduct of their affairs militarily, um, that of course upset the Americans, and they they have a, a sort of ramping up of their of their uh, embargoes on Japan to the point where, as you say, in July 1941, all Japan's assets are frozen, an oil embargo uh, added to the iron and the steel um, as a way of punishing Japan and you know refusing any longer to effectively help it carry out what seems to be a very aggressive uh, foreign policy in its neighbourhood. I just want to pick up on the point that Chris mentioned there about US embargoes. As he said, in July 1941, President Roosevelt made the decision to freeze all Japanese assets in the US. This move had drastic implications for Japan. Because by cutting off the country's access to steel, iron and most crucially, oil, the US threatened Japan's ability to sustain their ever more draining conflict with China. Pearl Harbor has often been described as a wild move, a huge gamble. But how did the Japanese actually feel about the prospect of provoking the US with a surprise attack? Were they optimistic about its outcome? I think it's a mixture of misplaced optimism and uh, despotism. So because of the state of the war in China and then Japan's moves into parts of Southeast Asia um, during the early part of the Second World War, there is a real danger of overstretch. And so there's a feeling in Japan in the late summer, early autumn of 1941, that if um, the Japanese are unable to extend their uh, dominance further in Southeast Asia and make the best of the resources that are available to them there, particularly after the American embargoes, then effectively they're going to run out of resources and be at serious strategic uh, risk. So there's a real sense of desperatism in the sense of time running out, uh, because if they don't get these resources in, then their advance has to stop and they'll be uh, essentially more and more then on the back foot because they simply can't resource the massive military effort that they've started making. So that's the despotism side, I think. And the other element of that, I suppose, is, um, you know, after August 1941, you have the signing of the Atlantic Charter between Roosevelt and Churchill, which the Japanese see effectively as a declaration of war against them. Um, the Japanese prime minister tries to get talks with Roosevelt one-to-one uh, -one, uh, to try and resolve the situation. That's rebuffed. It's clear that the Americans are demanding the Japanese leave China if there's to be any kind of an agreement, which the Japanese absolutely feel they cannot do because the general public would go mad. The amount of sacrifice that's been made um, with all the men sent to China and all the injuries and deaths that have been incurred. So that sense of being squeezed and acute desperatism, I think we, we can't uh, underestimate. On the other side of it, there's optimism, a, a limited optimism, maybe for a couple of reasons. One is that there's never an expectation that America will be defeated militarily. That's not 
the purpose of Pearl Harbor. The purpose of Pearl Harbor was, I suppose, twofold. One was to damage uh, American power in the region enough that um, the Japanese could take over the additional parts of Southeast Asia that they are after without American interference. And the other is to deal, you know, enough of a blow to American morale that the Americans will come back to the table and will be willing to negotiate in a way that they hadn't previously. So there's a hope that with a surprise attack, if it can be uh, effective, then those two aims can be achieved. Japan will have come through the worst of things and 1942 will be uh, a better year than the second half of 1941. And I guess there were dissenting voices at the time. How loud were were doubts about launching an attack on America? Yes, there there were certainly some um, in uh, Japan, including ideologues like uh, Ishiwara Kanji, who had been amongst those advocating and actually helping to plot the Manchurian incident uh, 10 years before, you know, which began, for some, some would argue, it began this entire train of events. Even, you know, ideologues like that had said, America really isn't our problem. China and the Soviet Union are the ones we really need to worry about. We can't afford to open up another front. And there are months and months of disagreement uh, at the very top of Japanese power about what should be done. And the final sign-off for Pearl Harbor doesn't happen until just a few days before the actual attack. So there's plenty of back and forth, but I think there's a sense of absolute despotism. General Tojo Hideki has replaced the previous Prime Minister, Konoe Fumimado, as someone who it's hoped can get things done. Konoe resigns, having basically failed to deal with the Americans. So there's a sense in Japan that they've tried actually quite hard diplomatically within the confines of what they can actually give up in terms of their own interests. And there is significant disagreement. But by this point, um, there isn't a lot of choice left. And the Hawks really seem to win out in those top level arguments. Throughout this conversation, Chris has painted a picture of a nation that had slowly but surely backed itself into a corner. Little by little, Japan had edged ever closer to a conflict with the US. But as I asked Chris, was there any point at which things might have gone differently? I wonder whether in the summer and early autumn of 1937, in the early part of the conflict with China. Not that the Americans could necessarily have done more, but it's obvious that the Chinese and the Japanese wanted the Americans and the Soviets to get involved diplomatically and try to see whether something could be settled. Uh, There were very few in Japan at that point that wanted to try to do something as completely crazy as uh, conquer China. So it's a mad idea in terms of the scale of the the project. At that point, might things have been different? I think there's a big question mark there. Getting closer to Pearl Harbor, I suppose, yeah, those summer months of 1941, by the time the so-called Hull Note gets issued in November 1941, which is, from the Japanese point of view, quite hard line in terms of what the Americans are asking for, Had there been a meeting between Roosevelt and uh, the Japanese Prime Minister at that point, potentially things could have been different because within Japan, as I say, there are always different factions fighting for control of policy and a favourable outcome to a meeting like that might just have held off uh, the hawks. But to be honest, it's hard to see what the terms of an agreement would have been. China was such a red line by that point, I think for both sides, that it's really difficult to see how a a compromise might have been worked out. But that would probably be the second of my uh, two points in time where things might have been different. So by the time we reached late 1941, several intractable factors had converged for the Japanese, all pointing in one direction. 
Number one, by this point, it was clear to a lot of people in Japan that a war with the United States was coming for various reasons and that the Japanese would be in the strongest position if they struck the first blow. That'd be number one. Number two would be that the war in China had got to the point where unless the Japanese got the United States off their back in the Asia-Pacific region, they faced collapse and defeat. And number three, I would say, almost inexplicably from our point of view now, but there was a serious underestimation of the degree to which the American population would be willing to fight back if they were attacked in that way. And next episode, we'll be getting into that American mindset, examining what the US was thinking on the eve of Pearl Harbor, giving their perspective on the disintegrating relationship with Japan and asking, why were the Americans blindsided by the attack? Thanks for listening. This episode was researched and written by me, Ellie Cawthorne. My guest for today's episode was Christopher Harding, Senior Lecturer in Asian History at the University of Edinburgh, and the author of books including Japan's Story in Search of a Nation and The Japanese, A History in Twenty Lives. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. Additional checks by Rob Blackmore.